This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 17th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at in vitro studies of virus neutralization by serum derived from patients who received either BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine, or mRNA1273, the Moderna vaccine. We published a new study on Monday, but before we look at that, can we review what we have learned from the earlier studies? So Steve, the studies you're referring to are these recent studies that looked at the ability of serum taken from patients in the early clinical trials of the two vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, and their ability to neutralize not just the virus that they were designed to neutralize, but variants that are out there right now. So these were very quantitative data, but to summarize them in a more qualitative way, all the sera had high neutralizing activity against the variant for which they were designed, which was the variant common in the US, at least until recently, and against the variant that was first identified in the UK, the B117 strain. Serum from recipients of the Pfizer vaccine also neutralized a virus containing the P1 sequence, which was first identified in Brazil and almost as well as it did the other variants. But sera from patients in both the Pfizer and Moderna studies did somewhat less well against B1351. That's the virus that's most variable and first seen in South Africa. It's important to remember several caveats about these studies though. First off, all the sera were able to neutralize all the viruses, though to different extents. And we don't know if there's such a thing as a cutoff value, a threshold which predicts whether or not there will be protection. And finally, it's possible that other forms of immunity, such as T-cell-mediated immunity, might be as important or even more important in the vaccine recipients. In other words, we can't make that key step of extrapolating from these data to what we really care about, which is protection against disease. Eric, I think that's such an important point. We need to monitor the virus as it changes and evolves and escapes selective pressure, such as the 1351 and the P1 variants of concern. But what we don't know, and I think it's worth really stressing, is there an antibody threshold of protection or are there other immune functions that are important in protection period or in combination with neutralizing antibody. What we hope to gain from the efficacy trials that are still ongoing for both mRNA vaccines as well as the AD26 construct are correlates of risk and correlates of protection. And when those parameters emerge, which may well be different for different constructs or inserts, then we'll be in a better position to understand the meaning of these in vitro observations. So then looking at the study we published on Monday, the results of a clinical trial together with a similar in vitro analysis for another vaccine, the ChimpAdOx1 and COVID-19 vaccine from Oxford and AstraZeneca. Can you tell us what was known about this vaccine before this recent study? This vaccine is broadly similar to the AD26 COVID-2S vaccine, the Janssen vaccine, in that the spike protein gene is being carried by an adenovirus. One difference, though, is that while the Janssen vaccine is based on a human adenovirus serotype, the AD26 virus, the Oxford vaccine uses a chimp adenovirus. In theory, this should mean limited pre-existing immunity to the viral vector in the human population, 
And the vaccine's been tested in a large phase three trial. It's been shown to be efficacious. The results are a bit complex, as it turned out that two different doses of the vaccine were inadvertently administered. However, the overall efficacy was something over 60%. Uh, the vaccine's been approved in several countries and is in widespread use in the UK. It's been used in several other countries, although some countries have recently suspended its use in the EU because of concerns about potential risk of increased thrombosis. I think that as we look at these different vaccines, we have to remember that there's both the delivery system and the immunogen. And as we try to compare them, we have to be very careful that we understand these differences and the limitations that these differences imply in terms of the conclusions we can make. As you pointed out, Eric, the chimp ad is new to the human species, and therefore there should be limited pre-existing immunity. It also has not co-evolved with the human species, so its efficiency of delivery may be different. While the ad 26 has co-evolved in humans, being passed from human to human over millennia, probably, therefore it has ways of delivering to the human immune system that are different than a virus that is restricted to a different species. What those differences mean in terms of pre-existing immunity versus efficiency of delivery or something for academic study and assessment in outcome. We also have to understand that the AstraZeneca Oxford group, uh, there are differences in the immunogen or insert utilized than in the AD26 or the mRNA vaccines. The significance of these differences of the insert are unclear, but may play a role in the nature of the immunity induced. So important observations, we need to be driven by well done clinical observations, but the vaccines themselves have important differences that will take some time to understand. And that doesn't even take into consideration the fact that the viruses circulating over time in these different communities have changed and therefore challenge the immune responses elicited differently. So complex problem, we welcome more data, but difficult to interpret in non-randomized settings. So the results we just published were from a smaller earlier phase trial, but what distinguishes it is that it was performed in South Africa, a country that now has a high burden of disease caused, as you said earlier, Eric, by the B1351 variant, which is not quite as well neutralized by sera from mRNA vaccine recipients. So tell us about the results of this new trial. Well, let me just lay it out the trial first. It was a small trial, as you said, about 2,000 total participants randomized one-to-one to receive the vaccine or a placebo. The study looked at the safety of the vaccine and had a primary efficacy endpoint of preventing PCR-positive COVID-19 disease of any severity starting two weeks after the second dose of vaccine among those who had no prior serologic evidence of infection. This is fairly similar to all the other vaccine studies in how it was set up. The investigators enrolled only HIV negative participants and included a small early group to evaluate immunologic responses to the virus. So then looking at the results, let's start with the immunology. What did the investigators find? They performed similar experiments to the ones that we discussed earlier, the in vitro neutralization assays. Again, it's a little bit complicated because the investigators performed a couple of different assays. But tellingly, in one of the assays they used, which measured the ability of serum to neutralize the live virus, 
one might think that that's sort of the ultimate assay. While all the sera can neutralize the wild type virus or the variant that's common in the US and almost all can neutralize the UK variant virus, only five out of the 13 sera were able to neutralize the South African variant. And even those that did, did so poorly. Again, as we said before, it's important to remember that these are only in vitro assays and that every lab performs a different assay. And so it's very difficult to compare these with what were already published. And I think that's such an important point, which is these in vitro assays are incredibly important to understand how antibodies in sera induced by immunization perform in neutralizing the virus. However, clinical data are needed to understand the meaning of these types of observations. When and if we can establish in vitro observations that predict clinical efficacy, something we would call immunobridging, that can then allow us to accelerate vaccine development using immunologic parameters versus outcome parameters. So very important data to generate. The meaning requires clear clinical correlation. So what's different about this study is that there were some clinical outcomes. Can we tell how well the in vitro results correlate with those clinical outcomes and with protection? The answer is yes, at least to some extent. Even though the study was 20 times smaller than most of the large phase three studies that we've discussed before, the rate of infection was very high at the time in South Africa. And they were able to accumulate 42 cases, which was what was required in their statistical analysis plan to reach their primary endpoint. And unfortunately, the numbers were very disappointing. There were 19 cases in the vaccine group and 23 in the placebo group. That gives an efficacy of about 22%, but with very wide confidence intervals. I should point out too that when they looked at the circulating virus and the virus in some of the recipients, it appeared to be almost entirely the B1351 variant, the one that's concerning. There are important caveats though. First, of course, it's a small study, and so you can't have too much faith in that point estimate of 22%, but it could vary in either direction. And more importantly, this was a very young group with a median age of only 31. And since those folks are at relatively low risk of developing severe disease, they didn't see much severe disease. In fact, none. So all of the disease they saw, they labeled either mild or moderate. So it remains possible that the vaccine can prevent severe infection and death, some of the complications of disease, even though it works less well or perhaps not at all against more mild symptomatic illness. I think these data point out some important conceptual framing of these efficacy studies. The size of the study, in my mind, is not how many are enrolled. It's endpoint-driven, which makes it very difficult to plan enrollment or the design of these vaccine studies, because is it more important to have 30,000 participants in a study or 50 or 100 or 200 endpoints to be able to show the quality of the protection? So I think that despite the small size of 2,000, it had a fair number of endpoints that allow insight into efficacy or unfortunately lack of efficacy. In addition, as you point out, Eric, it's what endpoint do we care about? Do we care about transmission? Do we care about acquisition, mild illness, moderate illness, severe illness? And obviously those are all important parameters, different ways to measure them, 
different implications, ultimately preventing severe disease such as hospitalization, ICU level care and death is what's most important, but also they're less common, so harder to accrue such endpoints. That's part of the reason that the FDA provided guidance as well as others that in efficacy studies in the placebo group, a certain number of severe cases need to be seen to be able to inform the community if severe disease is prevented. Because what we see in the placebo group affords us insight into what is prevented in the treatment group. And it's not good nor bad that the median age was 31. That's the way the study was done. And a high quality study informs you based upon how the question was asked. So I think these data are informative, but from a design standpoint, those are different elements we have to think carefully about so we as a community can make the proper inferences about what we learn. You make a good point, Lindsay. Remember that this is an early phase trial. This was not a registration trial. It wasn't designed to figure out whether or not the vaccine was going to be safe. It wasn't designed to look at something like severe disease. And we'd have to design a different study in order to do that. I will point out also that I have to give the investigators a lot of credit. And in fact, South African science in general, which really has stepped up during the COVID epidemic, not only from a public health standpoint, where there's been really thoughtful interventions on a countrywide basis, but also South African science. And there's so many good infectious disease researchers in that country. I couldn't agree with you more. The way the community has stepped forward in South Africa and other regions to inform us of what is going on with this virus in their community and sequencing the virus. The fact that the 351 variant was identified in South Africa and characterized as to key aspects of its significance is really a tribute to the work that is being done there and the importance of having local capacity building diversified across the world to be able to identify and characterize problems as well as solutions. Circling back to in vitro assays, do these results mean that we can now use such assays to predict vaccine efficacy? Unfortunately, they don't. For one thing, as we were just discussing, we don't know anything about this vaccine and severe disease. But we already have one example that seemed to work pretty well. The Janssen vaccine data aren't published, but they are available through the FDA submission. And the subgroup in South Africa was protected perhaps slightly less well than the U.S. subgroup, but nevertheless, there was still quite a bit of protection. So clearly vaccines do work and they work against at least this variant. And it does appear that this variant of all the ones that have been characterized thus far is the most difficult one for the current vaccine constructs. I agree, Eric. I think both the Janssen data and the Novavax data, which have been released in different formats, suggest that the current vaccine constructs afford modest protection against the 351 and the P1 variants, somewhat diminished from the parent strain the vaccines were designed around, but still have meaningful efficacy. That will need to be further explored, characterized to allow us scientifically to exploit these viral vulnerabilities, but it's encouraging that the current vaccine constructs have demonstrated clinical efficacy. Lindsay, I know that you've been involved in the development of one of these vaccines, and I don't want you to compare across vaccines, but 
what kinds of considerations in vaccine design can lead to these differences in efficacy? So, Steve, that's such an important question to understand. And I alluded to some of these features earlier. The nature of the delivery system as to how is the immune system activated, predominantly B cell, T cell, within the B and T cell framing which immune functions are preferentially brought out. And so I think that's important. In addition, it's understanding the insert. What is it or the immunogen? What is it we want to have an immune response to? And then in addition, we have to understand that this is not a static process. So as the virus, which is evolving on its own terms to be more efficient at transmitting, how does the viral evolution, which we need to monitor, inform us as to how we should improve the immunogen that we are attempting to deliver? So I think there are many things we need to learn. I think it is terrific that we have a lot of different tools already developed. But unfortunately, there's a lot of virus around the world and it is evolving and we need to move faster than it is moving so that we can protect you know, large swaths of our global community. You know, vaccines are a very empiric animal. The way that vaccines are made is you start with good underlying theory and then you try things because there are so many different variables you can try. These were done rapidly, uh, the vaccines we have right now. That doesn't mean that they're less safe or that we should be concerned about them, but it does mean that people had to make choices very early and they chose and they chose reasonably. And the outcome of that is we have lots of vaccines, but there's no one right answer to how you make a vaccine. As you said, Lindsay, you can induce different kinds of immunity and different vaccines may be efficacious, even though they use different arms of the immune system. We don't know that, but it's certainly possible. And then there are so many minor things. How much of the antigen do you put in? We have no guide for that. We only use some early clinical data and a very small number of people to try to determine that. But the amount of reactogenicity that you get can correlate conceivably with the amount of immunity you get because you're inducing an inflammatory response, which is important. So the amount of antigen you use, the structure of the antigen you use. And as Lindsay's been saying, the spike protein constructs are different in some of the different vaccines. And all of that is a guess. It's a very educated guess, but they're guesses. And so it's not surprising that different vaccines are going to behave differently from one another. I mean, I think, Eric, you point out that just even with the vaccines we have, optimizing the dose, the interval, and how many shots to give there's room to work that out better. And then with second generation or third generation vaccines addressing variants, how do we use them in combination? And that's just with the constructs that we already are comfortable with. So there's a lot more empiric data that need to be generated that can potentially improve this therapy. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.